You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so if you have been here over the last few months, you know we have been working through these opening chapters of Revelation where Jesus is writing these seven letters to seven particular churches in what the Bible would call Asia Minor, we would look at uh, and call a modern day Turkey. And we are now to the church in Philadelphia. And the letter starts like this in, in Revelation 3 verse 7. Uh, very simple, same sort of phraseology that we see throughout uh, these letters. Uh, Jesus opens it by saying, and to the, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. So he's writing to this particular church in this particular city. Now let's just think context for a moment. Uh, let's think about the city. Uh, the city was founded by two brothers, Adelus and Eumenes. And when Rome tried to turn one brother against the other, they stayed faithful to each other. They didn't turn with Rome against the other. And so uh, they earned the nickname Philadelphus or brotherly love, right? It's the, the original Philadelphia right here, the, the original city of brotherly love. And, and that name just sort of stuck with the city and was called by, by that name going forward. And let's think about the church for a moment. This is a persecuted church in Philadelphia. Faithfulness to Jesus, if you were a Christian in this church, came at a high price. Uh, they were persecuted from the outside. Just think of the Roman culture around them. Had no respect for them as Christians. Uh, was not interested in leaving any dignity on the table for them as Christians. So you had that from the outside. Uh, but then you also had a persecution from, you could think of it as the inside, from the Jewish community in the area. So now just take a step back and think about cities in the ancient world. Th this city was like many of those cities where you had Jewish men and women after the exile, right? Now, now they're freed up from all these countries they were dispersed to. Uh, they ended up settling in many of these cities, just like Philadelphia. And soon after they would settle in a city like this, the, the Jewish men and women there would establish a synagogue. And because Christianity flows directly out of Judaism, right? Uh, Christianity is in a lot of ways just the Old Testament fulfilled, Judaism fulfilled. Uh, because that's true, so often the church in these cities would start in the synagogue. So if you've uh, read through the book of Acts, you know that Paul's sort of MO in church planning is he shows up in a city, he goes directly to the synagogue, he preaches Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Here is the one we have been waiting for, his life, death, and resurrection. Here's Jesus. He, he preaches Jesus, people get saved, uh, you've got converts to Jesus, and then he plants a church there. That, that's his normal sort of way of, of going about uh, church planting. But, but this Jewish crowd in Philly, they were having nothing to do with these early Christians. They, they didn't want anything to do with them. They kicked them out of the synagogue. Now think of the synagogue as the center for not only religious life, but of your social life. So, so these Christians in Philadelphia, persecuted from without and within, they are moved to the margins of the city. They are ostracized. They are persecuted. That, that's life in Philadelphia as a follower of Jesus. And this is why Jesus in verse 8 looks at this church and look at this little phrase. He looks at them and says, I know that you have but little power. This is a small church. It's not an impressive church. Uh, people aren't, aren't looking at this church from the outside and saying, man, that church is amazing. Other churches aren't calling this church in Philadelphia and are like, hey, will you tell us kind of what you're doing and what's going on and the best practices? And let us learn. They're not saying any of that stuff to this church. This church is unimpressive. 
It, it looks so insignificant. Uh, this church is not changing the world. They're just faithfully plodding along, doing the best they can. That, that's this church. You have but little power. Now, here is what is so interesting about this church. They have no power. They're not changing the world around them, right? They're not that church. They're just seemingly insignificant, but Jesus has all commendation for this church and no correction. I think in a lot of ways, it's one of the ironies of the seven letters. The two churches that appear most impressive so, so that would be Sardis and Laodicea. Those two churches that, that seem and appear most impressive, they get the sharpest correction from Jesus. But the two churches who appear least impressive, Smyrna, Philadelphia, th those two churches get the highest praise from Jesus. Now, I think there is something in that that, that every church needs to, to receive from Jesus, what we need to receive from Jesus. And here it is. You don't have to be big to others to be beautiful to Jesus. You don't have to, quote unquote, change the world, right, to be commended by Jesus. You don't have to look spectacular to other people for Jesus to look upon you and smile. That's one of the things we need to receive out of this text. They had but but of little power. Think of uh, that little storefront church, a couple of dozen people in there plodding along, just doing the best they can. Every now and then they have a conversion. That's, that's this church. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're significant to me. You're spectacular to me. And he tells us some of the reasons why in verse 8. He says, here's why, because you have kept my word. Unlike the church in Pergamum, they were marked by convictional faithfulness. They, they didn't compromise. They were willing to stand wherever Jesus drew the lines. So their finger was not up to the sort of cultural winds to try to figure out what way is culture blowing and we'll just sort of make things palatable to them and sort of get in alignment with what the culture thinks. That wasn't them. Their nose was in the scriptures, and they had the courage to stand, regardless of the cost, wherever Jesus drew the line. You have kept my word, he says. And then he goes on, you have not denied my name. They not only kept Jesus' word, they were heralding Jesus' name. They saw themselves as missionaries in their church as a missional outpost in a pagan city. That, that's this church. They were evangelistic. They were talking about Jesus to people. And Jesus looks at them and says, I, I love you for these reasons. I, I love you. In verse 9, he says, one day, they, the people who have been kicking you out of these synagogues, one, one day they will learn that I have loved you, that I am looking upon you with a huge smile upon my face. They're going to learn that one day. This church reminds us, that although no church can be perfect, a church can be pleasing to Jesus. And don't you want that? Gosh, I, I just this week, thinking about how Jesus commends this church, I, I just, before Jesus was just asking him, God, would you make us into this sort of a place? Would you make us these sort of people? So again, see this clearly. This church was small, seemingly insignificant, unspectacular. No one knew about them, but Jesus sees them. But Jesus loves them. 
Jesus commends them. Jesus honors them. Jesus holds them up as exemplary in their patient endurance. Now, when you think about this letter, yes, it is meant to be received by us as a church. So it's meant to be received on that level, the whole of us asking, what do we as a church look like in light of this letter? But it's also meant to be received at the level of an individual Christian, you personally and me personally. And when we think of it on the individual level, us receiving this letter from the Lord, it's not hard for me to see myself in this church. Uh, When I look in the mirror, it is not hard for me to see someone who feels um, as of little power. It's not hard for me to feel when I look in the mirror as someone that is just insignificant. It's not hard for me to to look in the mirror and see someone who is small and and not spectacular. All of those things, when I look in the mirror, I'm like, yeah, that that all accords. I I can see myself like that. When I read Jesus say, I know you have but little power, I can look in the mirror and I can receive those words from Jesus in a very similar way. Yeah, I, I feel that too, Jesus. Now think about what Jesus is doing for this church. He's, he's writing to this little church with little power. He's writing to Christians like you and me with little power. And Jesus gives in this letter big promises, massive promises, huge promises. And it's these promises that enable a church, that enable a follower of Jesus to patiently endure, to stay faithful to Jesus forever. It's these promises. So here's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I just want to look at five of these promises that we see in this text. Five promises, huge promises from Jesus that he gives to little people like you and me. And these huge promises enable us to to endure patiently, to stay faithful. Five promises. We'll start in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia... Write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens, uh, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I love the way Jesus introduces himself to this church. Uh, then you get to verse eight. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here's the first promise. Jesus is looking at this church and reminding them, promise one, my doing is decisive. My doing is decisive. See, part of what what it means to have but little power is that even when we do, not much gets done. Right? That, that's sort of what it means to not have a lot of power. Even when you do, even when you're trying, even when you're doing everything you can, even when you do, not much gets done. So just imagine what it would feel like to be this church in this city. You're a small minority in a hostile city. The winds of culture are blowing against you. You are on the outside. You are marginalized. You are unimportant. No one, No one in this city cares what you think. You are but of little power. And Jesus looks at this little church of little power and says, but church, I'm not of little power. My doing is decisive. And church of little power, 
my doing is for you, for your good, to help you. My doing is decisive and my doing is for you. Jesus says in this text, I'm the one who opens the door. And when I open a door, no one's going to shut it. They don't have the capacity to shut it. No one can shut the door that I open. And on the other side, when I shut a door, no one's going to come along with a key that opens that door. When I shut the door and I lock it, no one can unlock that door. No one can open that door. My doing, Jesus is saying, is decisive. Now, what does it mean for Jesus to open and shut a door? What is that referring to? Well, something, uh, it refers to like the eternal door, like uh, the door with God forever, reconciliation with God. And undoubtedly, that, that's a part of what this means, uh, that Jesus is the only one who can open that door through his life, uh, his death, his, his burial, and his resurrection. Only Jesus can open that door. The risen Jesus has to open that door. His doing is decisive in our saving, right? So, so yes to that. Uh, that, that's undoubtedly part of what it means. Now, others think it refers to a temporal door, uh, the door of missional opportunity. Paul often uses that imagery uh, there at the end of Colossians. He says, pray for us that the Lord may open a door for the word. So that's imagery that is familiar with the Bible, that door imagery for evangelistic and missional opportunities. And I'm a yes to that. So yes to both of those things, that to the powerless church and to all of us, us powerless people, Jesus is saying, hey, I've saved you. I am the one who opened that door and no one can shut that door. Other people can't shut that door on you. Those Jewish people in that synagogue can't shut that door on you. You can't even shut that door on you. I am the one who saves. It is my doing. My doing is decisive. Yes, to that powerless church, Jesus is saying here in this text, I have opened the door of missional opportunity for you. I have arranged your life in such a way where you would be born in this moment, at this time. Then I rescued you and now I'm using you. I have put you in this particular city, Philadelphia. I've put you here, church, so that you could be the, pe the people, the person who reaches that neighbor, who reaches that coworker, who reaches that person over there. I put you here to use you. I have opened the door of evangelistic opportunity, of missional opportunity. That's to the church then in Philadelphia. That's to us now. Jesus wants us to know that. that that door is open. He has opened that door. No one can shut that door. Jesus is saying, my doing is decisive. So I think it's all of that. And I think it's more than that. I think Jesus is looking at this little powerless church, insignificant. No one cares about this church. And he's reminding them of that promise that God gives us in Romans 8.31. So it's one of my favorite promises in the New Testament, where Paul is talking to these discouraged Christians. And he just wants to put wind in their cells with these beautiful promises of God. And he says to them in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? Who, who, can, who can shut the door that I open? Right? Who, who, can, who, who can do that? Who can open the door that I shut? No one can do that. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's just Jesus saying there in Romans 8 and in this text, what others do or don't do in your life is not decisive. Can we just receive that from the Lord? It's not decisive in your life. What you do and don't do in your life, that's not decisive for your life. Jesus is saying, no, my doing 
is decisive. I am the one with the power, oh you church of little power. Oh you Christian of little power, my doing is decisive. It's Jesus reminding this little church and us today of just, I think this is a truth that just, it will change your life if you will lean into it. He is reminding this church that, no, hear me, no person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's purposes for you. That, that is amazing to consider. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's purposes for you. Jesus is saying, I am the one, not you, not other people. I am the one who opens and shuts doors. I open the eternal door. I open uh, those missional doors. I open every door. And when I open it, no one can shut it. When I shut it, no one can open it. Church, if we could just lean our life into this promise today, many of us would walk out of here so much freer. Jesus is looking at us today. And just, he's just reminding us. He's just, he's just bringing this promise back in front of the church and laying it before them. He, he's just reminding them that your boss does not open and close doors for you. Your boss cannot ruin your life. He's just reminding us that powerful people don't open and close doors for you. Powerful people cannot wreck your life. It's they cannot do it. He's reminding them that, that evil people do not open and close doors for you. They don't have the capacity to do it. They don't have the strength to do that. He's reminding them that not even your sin can open and close doors for you. It doesn't have the power, the capacity to do it. It's, no, he's saying, it is Jesus. It is me. I am the one who opens and closes doors. And when I open them, no one can shut them. And when I shut them, no one can open them. My doing is decisive. I, I love this promise. He's giving this little promise to this little church. But he's also giving it to us, to, to you, to, to me. Maybe you are fearful today. You just woke up and you're really anxious about things. You're worried about things. How's that going to go? How's this going to go? What, what about that? What about this? What about my finances in 15 years? What about, I mean, just all the things. Can you just let Jesus remind you, just give you this promise today? His doing is decisive. His doing is decisive. No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block God's plan for you. Maybe today you are disappointed with your life. It just hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go. Your life is full of what we might just call shattered dreams. Your health is not what you thought it would be. Your job, your career is not what you thought it would be. Your relationships are not what you thought they would be. Your marriage is not what you thought it would be. Your kids are struggling, they're, they're not where you thought they would be. A grievous evil was done to you that you never thought would be in your life. You've lost someone or something that you never thought you would lose. You're just, you're just sort of standing in all the disappointment of your life. This promise is for you. J Jesus is looking at you today and saying, my doing is decisive in your life.
No person, no evil, no tragedy, no sin done by you or against you can block my purposes for you. That's the promise Jesus is making you today. No one or nothing can ruin your life. Nothing can. Because when Jesus opens the door, no one can shut it. When he shuts it, no one can open it. Nothing can block God's plan for your life. If God is for you, who can be against you? That's promise one. Here's promise two. Promise two is that vindication will come. Vindication will come. Read verse nine with me. I just want you to notice a couple of things out of it. I I think it's really an amazing verse. He says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. That's what he calls the the synagogue there in Philadelphia. The synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. So let me just say this clearly. This passage is not anti-Semitic. It is anti-sin. And here was the problem with the Jews in this particular synagogue. They, they were blind to the person of Jesus. They just could not see the beauty of who Jesus was. They, the people of God, rejected God, and then they rejected his people. That's what was happening in this synagogue. They kicked those early Christians out of the synagogue. Right? They rejected them. They treated them as outcasts. But Jesus says one day, this day's coming, I will vindicate you. I, I will bring them before you. They will bow at your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Jesus is just saying, here's your promise. Vindication is coming. Vindication is coming. Now, why is a promise like this important? Um, well, here's the reason it's important. Last night, I was talking to Caleb, my son. He just turned 13. And I said, uh, Caleb, if someone punches you, what do you like innately want to do back? And he said, punched back. Yeah, because that's what we all want to do. It's amazing, isn't it? You punch me, I want to punch you. You hurt me, I want to hurt you. And not only do I want to hurt you, I want to sort of double the hurt just to make sure you never hurt me again. Now, here's the problem with that. As soon as you double the hurt to make sure they never want to hurt you again, what does that person do? Well, they double your double to make sure you never hurt them again, right? And on goes the deadly cycle of revenge, Right? That, that's what happens, and, and that's, that, that can happen to you, and it can happen to me. And friends, God has given us this promise to deliver us from that deadly cycle of revenge. Uh, in Romans chapter 12, Paul talks about something very similar there. Uh, and, and by the way, if, if you are hurt this morning by someone, if you feel really hurt by them, and, and you're feeling in you that reflex of, I want to hurt back. I, I want to punch back. And twice as hard. I, I would just encourage you today to, to grab your Bible, to read Romans 12, and just let your heart just sort of soak in it today and just see if the Lord might help you in it. Uh, here, here's part of what J- Jesus is communicating to us in Romans 12 is that he wants us to be a people who love without limits. I mean, it's, it's crazy talk in Romans 12. He, he looks at us in Romans 12 and says, hey, um, I want you to bless those who persecute you. That, that's not normal, right? That, that's hugging the person who punched you, right? It's like, I, I want you to bless those who persecute you. Verse 17, I, I want you to repay no one evil for evil. And then you get to verse 19. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, beloved, never avenge yourself. D- don't be the person after revenge. 
Don't do that. Now, why would he say that? What gives us the capacity to do that? He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, then feed him. If he's thirsty, then give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the logic of the text. We don't need revenge because God will vindicate us. That's the logic. And I'm going to look at you and remind you of that. You do not need revenge because of Jesus' promise to vindicate you. You don't have to punch back. You don't have to hurt back. Because Jesus will vindicate you. He will settle all accounts. He will right every wrong. Every crime, every harsh word, every wrong deed will either be pinned to Jesus or felt forever by the perpetrator. Everyone. Let me say it this way. No one gets away with anything in this life. No one does. That's the logic of this text. It's the logic of, of what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia. It's the logic of Romans 12. No one gets away from, with anything. Vindication will come. So today, if you feel hurt, wronged by someone, and you're feeling that, that just innate desire to punch back, can you receive this promise from Jesus today? That, that you don't have to seek revenge because he will vindicate you. It will either be pinned to Jesus or the perpetrator will feel it forever. He will vindicate you. That's, that's the point he's making to this precious little church in Philadelphia. I will vindicate you. And maybe we could ask it this way. Could you today, in light of this promise, could you trust Jesus with your hurt? Rather than seeking revenge, gossiping about him, looking for a way to get him back, could you trust Jesus with your hurt to right the wrong for you? Could you lay down your want to right the wrong and let Jesus do it? Could you trust him like that today? That's what this promise enables us to do. Promise three, help is here. Help is here. This is verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about the hour of trial. Is that like this future season of extreme trial and trouble? Uh, maybe. Uh, others think that it is referring to life now as a Christian, just all the trouble and trial that, that sort of befalls a Christian in, in just a life in a fallen world. All the, the troubles and trials we have in these last days before Jesus comes back. And I'm a yes to both of that. I just think it's all of it. It's all the trials and troubles, right? But the most important issue in this text is not the problem of what trial is he talking about. The most important thing is the promise. Here's the promise. Underline these four words in verse 10. I will keep you. This is Jesus looking at you and saying, church, in the middle of trial and trouble, I will keep you. That's what I'll do. Now, that does not mean uh, you will have no pain in your life. Right? That's not what that promise means. But when he says, I'll keep you, it's not that you will live a pain-free life. No, Jesus is saying, I will keep you from Satan's destructive purposes for your pain. I will keep you from that. 
It's the same wording used in John 17 uh, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He's praying, just pouring out his heart to God the Father. And, and he prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Same wording used, that you keep them from, you're not going to take them out, not going to live a pain-free life. No, that you would keep them from the evil one. That's this promise that we find in Revelation 3. When hard things come into your life, both God and Satan have a purpose for that pain. God's purpose is for that pain to make you look more like Jesus, right? It's going to be a way for him to crack open your heart, for him to draw you deeper into his own heart. That's the purposes of God. The purposes of Satan are different. It's not to, to open up your heart to the Lord. It's to turn your heart from the Lord. It's to destroy your faith in Jesus. So, so both have a purpose in the pain. And what Jesus is saying is, I will promise you that I will keep you from Satan's purposes and I will protect you so that you can receive God's purposes for your pain. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am here to help you. Right now, I am here to help, to hold you, to protect you, to keep you from all eternal harm. And maybe, maybe you're like this powerless little church in Philadelphia. It's just hardship on every side in your life. It's pain everywhere in your life. Could you receive this promise from the Lord? It's what we talk about in Jude all the time, that little benediction. Or we say, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's Jesus. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's Jesus. Saying, I, I, I'm here to help you. I'm here to help you. Promise four. I am coming. You see it right there in verse 11. Promise four. Jesus says in verse 11, I am coming soon. This is one of the themes, one of the promises, one of the truths. The whole entire letter of Revelation is trying to convince us of that Jesus is coming soon. This letter is all about putting this promise in your heart and then inflaming it so that it is just white hot and burning hot in your heart that you would live every day wide awake to this promise. Our king is coming back. I mean, church, can we just receive that from the Lord today? That we have a God, Jesus. He is coming back for his bride, the church. I am coming soon, Jesus says. Uh, this week, I've just been thinking about this text, you know, just sort of sitting in it all week. And uh, I typically uh, don't have a thought until about 10 a.m. in the morning. So that, I'm just not a morning person. But, but here's what I've tried to do every day this week. I have tried to make my first waking thought this promise. So the first thing I think about when I wake up is Jesus is on his way. Jesus is coming soon. And can I tell you why I think that's so important for us to do? Because it enables the, the rest of verse 11. When we start thinking like that, seeing that, receiving that promise from the Lord, then the rest of verse 11 is possible. He says, hold fast what you have. Don't give up. Don't give in. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I hope when you read that, you're like, I don't want anyone to take my crown from me, right? I hope you feel that in you. And, and here's how you hold fast to Jesus. Now, how do we hold fast to Jesus? Here's how we remember that he's coming back for us, that he's coming, he's coming soon. We keep that truth alive in us. And you know when we keep that truth alive in us? Disappointing marriages 
aren't as disappointing. We can patiently endure it. Trial and trouble hurts, but we can patiently endure it. But when we know that Jesus is coming, he's coming back for us. Hey, and here's the fifth promise. Promise five. A bright future awaits. I'm just amazed at how Jesus has a way of turning the attention of every one of these churches to their future. But what's in front of them? And he does it here again in verse 12. To the one who conquers. That's the one who holds fast, who patiently endures, who stays faithful to Jesus. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is just Jesus wetting our appetite for what's to come. It's, it's Jesus taking our chin and lifting it up so that we can see beyond our everyday lives up into our future, this incredibly bright future that awaits us, eternal life, the life to come. He says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. That's a promise to that little powerless church. I will make you a strong pillar. You're going to be in my temple, he says. You're never going to lose. You're going to be in my presence forever, Jesus is saying. And then he goes on and says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. That's just a poetic way of saying, I am going to blow your mind with this bright future that awaits. Your mind is going to be blown. That's what he's communicating. He said, I'm, I'm preparing, I'm, I'm preparing a place for you. I will one day welcome you into this bright new future. And it is going to just stun your heart to see it. Absolutely stun you. He's just reminding us that for those who are not in Christ, this is as good as it gets, man. Eat, drink, and be merry because this life is all you got. It's as good as it gets. But for those who are in Christ, this life is as bad as it gets. The best for us is yet to come. Jesus is saying a bright new future, a place that you were made for with the person that you were made for. That bright future awaits. In church, he closes this letter like he does all of these letters. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May we Stonegate here today. Why don't you bow with me? give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away what wouldn't be. Could you there, just where you are, would you ask the Lord, which of these promises do you need to receive today? Which of these promises are in this text today that we're going through today that you need today? These promises enable us to endure patiently, to stay faithful. You need them. I need them. For some of us today, the the big sort of moment for us, the decision for us is that decisive step toward Jesus. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you. You can right there where you are, you can call out to the Lord. If you know you are far from Jesus, call out to him. 
throw your life upon him this morning. He would love to save, rescue, redeem. So, oh God, would you do that work? Would you do that right here in this moment? Oh God, would you minister the good news of Jesus that, that breaks open all of these promises to your people? God, would you minister that gospel down into us? Would you help us lean into these promises today? It's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.